0: Friends, and welcome back to another episode of These Five Songs. Do you miss the power of a good riff? Do you miss undeniably catchy hooks? Well, I think I have found a solution for you. Touring with bands like Against Me and Alexis on Fire, winning Breakthrough Artist of the Year at the Junos, and playing across Europe, today's guest has quite the resume. Some would say that rock and roll is dead, but the Dirty Nil would say otherwise. Luke Bentham, hello. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you today? I'm very
1: well. Uh, just uh, I appreciate the very warm, uh, warm intro, but uh, uh, yeah, just, um, you know, surviving through the pandemic uh, in my apocalypse uniform, aka my pajamas and uh, my guitar at my side.
0: Nice. Nice. It's uh, yeah. You know, the guitar is good uh, for creativity, but also in, uh, you know, if need be, as, as, a, as a weapon. Uh, That's it, true. It was, yeah.
1: <laughs> Underrated apocalypse weapon.
0: That's right. Um, so, new single out now, I'm Done With Drugs. Um, this is coming after Master Volume, which had a song called Always High. Now, uh, is, is there a connection here? Are, are the Dirty Nil writing uh, straight-edge anthems now?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, okay. I
0: think, uh, you know, I, what, usually when it comes to these themes and
1: stuff. Um, as a in terms of lyrics, I'm a bit of a, just a sponge of things that are said around me. And I kind of just create, uh, I create uh, kind of little stories in my head just off of little sentiments. Like I remember somebody said to me outside one time out of a venue, like I was talking to my friend. And um, I was just like, Are you ever gonna quit smoking or anything? He's just like, dude, smoking is magic. So I just <laughs> use that title and um, that's great uh you know, always high was like a, a another thing that I just observed my friend there's just like uh, somebody that just goes through life all like who's just constantly stoned, and I just thought that was like that is an interesting way to live your life and I just applied you know, I will say though that there is there is a person in my past um i can I can basically say my past who um you know was probably my best friend for about ten years that uh um, went off the rails with the booze, particularly, but also somewhat the drugs, but mainly the booze. And um, I mean, I think that kind of the loss of having that my best friend just kind of disintegrate oh, um, yeah. has kind of proved to be, a, to this point, a quite a, a well of, of like, I won't say it's a well of inspiration because I don't I don't feel comfortable looking at it as I'm kind of Mm-hmm. um you know profiting off of somebody else's misfortune or poor choices in life but it is kind of like i think that kind of exploring those kinds of themes through song is like a way that i have kind of coped with the loss of you know this it's it feels strange talking in the past tense because this person is still alive but in all senses of the word um and in terms of my interaction with them um you know we don't speak anymore and Um, I think, as I said, deal, trying to navigate that and trying to understand it and cope with it, has kind of proved that's been the, um, been, I would say the, the well of inspiration to me. It's not even inspiration. It's just, as I said, it's just me trying to deal with it. Find different
0: like perspectives
1: uh, to write. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, um,
1: you know, I think that that's, that's a fairly universal, um, aspect or feature of. Of, of of life is having friends or yourself um you know struggle with uh alcohol and drugs and any, any anything else that's addicting like um you know Doritos and ice cream are addicting to some people and yeah uh, for sure. You know, there's lots of things that if, if thing if anything feels good it can be abused, you
0: know. Yeah. Uh and, and so uh so the theme that uh, you know, kind of straying away from from that, but the theme that uh you picked today, uh, for the five songs, is tension and release. Um, yes. So now, it was was that uh, what made you decide to pick this theme?
1: Um, you know, I was initially kind of gonna maybe go with something that was more like riff-based, of like riffs that really turned me on and influenced my guitar style. But I think that like it was, I just I started thinking about songs that I. Um, that we're maybe trying to pick a more eclectic group of, uh, tunes rather than like, you know, I could just say the first, I could just say all of Raw Power by the students is is like, that's my, (laughs) that's like pretty much everything that I love is just that right there, that, that album. And that's the end of the story. But, um, in terms of like the music and the way that we try and, I think that naturally things that we are inclined to do are, um, are building tension and releasing tension. Um, I think a lot of music with drama in it is based around that principle. And um, that's something that I wasn't really aware of why I was attracted to those moments and stuff until, you know, I really started kind of uh, uh, picking them apart and comparing them to each other. And that was the common thread. And I think that that a lot of the music that I like and the music that makes my hair stand up on my arms and neck when I'm listening to it still is uh is that is that that tension and release
0: definitely um, uh yeah and so the the first track on this list uh Dinosaur Jr. The Lun off the album You're Living All Over Me released December Fourteenth, nineteen eighty seven um, yes so nineteen eighty seven this album it, it definitely I would say represents a. Uh, a pretty big shift in the way that I guess eighties rock would be, uh, considered. Um, cause up until that point, definitely a lot of cheese, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, your are Brian Adams, uh, et um, white and, snake. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, but then at this, uh, the tail end of the eighties, you know, uh, like surfer Rosa came out a year later, uh, pleased to meet me by the replacements in the same year. Like, uh, all these, these great, uh, Alt Rock Records. Um, so, how does this song lend itself to the theme, tension release?
1: Well, you know, we were when we first started. Uh, or I guess about ten years ago is when we really discovered this album, and we just became obsessed with it. And I, 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 in particular, because it is certainly mixed uh, for guitar players rather than maybe drummers or bass players, but. Um, mm-hmm the the introduction of the song it's just it's it's it create there's such a and i i i i feel like i'm going to overuse the word drama in this uh in this podcast but um um you know that this this song has such a great um like theatrical tension within it um that basically and it takes quite a while and kind of it brings the listener um, on this journey of, uh, of, uh, of dis-ease. And then um, as it kind of builds to its climax, releases it all with a, a ma- just this beautiful major chord progression that straight out of Neil Young or something. But up until then, it's this really claustrophobic kind of tight feeling um, uh, progression that um, just keeps... Keeps keeps you on edge until it reaches that penultimate climax and releases it with that insaneo, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, increase in volume and um, and then there's the a very small section of singing and then a wild wild guitar solo and then it's over. It's it's a very strange structure for a song, but I would just listen to it on repeat because I just couldn't wait to get to that. Um, uh, as I said that release it's, it's such a it's such a great um you know build up to payoff ratio on that song
0: definitely very very uh, very satisfying um yes but uh h- how much of an influence has jay mascus uh his tone how much has that played on on the dirty Mills music huge absolutely yeah. huge yeah. i mean
1: when we got into that album uh that it J- Dinosaur Jr. was one of the first bands to kind of break my mind out of like just power chord based playing, and um, J Maskus has such a an evolved sense of melody and uh, chord usage, and you know uses all these weird inversions. and I don't really know very. I know very little about music theory, and I don't say that I don't. Uh, I'm not proud of my ignorance. It's just that's that's the truth. That's mm-hmm. the true thing. Like I just haven't really explored all that much music theory but jay Maskus in his playing is just such a natural naturally gifted uh melodic guy and i mean i think that di- the reason why dinosaur jr is different to me than a lot of uh, their contemporaries is that like jay mascus is a guitar hero like pretty clear cut even though he's you know in a non-traditional package he's not he's, he's a very uh kind of uh in person he's a very kind of uh soft-spoken um very introverted seeming guy um in most of the interviews that he gives and i've spoken to him a few times and he's he doesn't usually have much to say but
0: you know you put a guitar or a drum set in his hands and he'll he'll tell you he'll tell you a beautiful story exactly yeah uh (laughs) Um, so, so let's move on to the next song here, and that is uh, Constantine's "Time Can Be Overcome" off the album Kensington Heights, uh, released April fifteenth, two thousand and eight. Uh, so, a little taste of Canada here, Guelph, yes. Ontario. Yes. Woo. <laughs> um, how important was you know CanCon and, and specifically, I guess, like the the alternative CanCon scene uh, in your growth as a musician?
1: well I would cite seeing the Constantines in having no having ne- having never heard one of their songs having I saw them in in the fall of 2008 when I was at school in Waterloo Ontario I saw them at Starlight okay. and I would cite that as one of the most important shows that I ever saw and I had just turned 18 years old and the Constantines were touring Kensington Heights and uh, I was just I was just blown away because I mean I had I was aware of Fugazi and my dad had always listened to Bruce Springsteen and stuff. And I know that's the kind of classic comparison, the Constantine's is kind of a merger between those Mm -hmm. two, you know, seemingly dichotomous um, influences, but they tend to marry them in a very elegant and very interesting, cool way. That's quite compelling. You know, people call them the band's band, you know, which is, I think a very apt description because, Whenever the Constantines have reunited since their original dissolution in 2010 or 2011, every time I'm at one of their shows, you just look around and it's just everybody that's in a band is at yeah, that yeah. show. It's it's uh, they're an incredibly highly respected band and very very deservingly so. Um, I just remember being completely blown away by their use of uh, dynamics and their emphasis on rhythm uh which i just you don't find as often in a lot of rock music i know that's kind of a sad thing to say but a lot of people just kind of um you know rely on um sheer volume which is obviously cool i i subscribe to that uh to that <laughs> as well but um yeah. the constantines used it in in a way and in a controlled manner that i had never seen before mm. and i was just so blown away by how good they were live and they were playing a lot of material off of, um, Kensington Heights at the time because they were supporting it. And I just remember that song, um, because it, again, it had this kind of, uh, really, really tender and vulnerable sounding, um, uh, beginning and instrumental aspects. And is always the, such a beautiful lyricist, um, with his, uh, he's, he's got, he's cryptic, but also, you know, he paints with his lyrics. He doesn't tell you things right on the nose. I always, I always really, really appreciate that, um, you know, lyricist when they can kind of just not necessarily show you exactly what they're talking about, but kind of give you just a few things so that you can sketch it for yourself. And yeah, exactly. that, that song is such a beautiful sentiment to me. And I think becomes, Increasingly uh, uh, relevant the older you get. But um, I just remember, you know, to anyone that's heard that song or that's going to listen to it, the way that the music kind of has, as I said, this kind of really fragile, vulnerable beginning and then opens up um, into this super righteous, um, but simple and powerful uh, set of chords, super simple chords. Um, and uh it kind of teases it in the intro and then at the very end just Mm -hmm. blows it all open and then this guitar comes in that sounds like a just a nuclear bomb going off and it is it's uh that's how it was when i first saw it and i've always kind of like i've been a little bit disappointed as a as a guitar player i wish it was a little higher in the mix in the actual studio recording but i'll never forget seeing that live the first time and just having my my face ripped off. Uh, Will Kidman, their organ player, actually plays the guitar solo at the end. And just, I just remember just uh, being left without words because it was so righteous. Righteous is the only word that I can think <laughs> of to describe um, the release of that song.
0: Yeah, and, and sometimes it is, you know, like those, those live moments that then make a song stick out forever yes. just because you, yeah, you have that engraved, that, you know, memory of just finding a new song and being like, oh, this is incredible. Um, yeah. And, and so the Constantines, I'm, I'm sure they, they, you know, they, they're they're a very different kind of band, I, I would say. Uh, they. I don't really know where they exactly fit in. Um, like you said, it's kind of a, I guess, um, a mashup of, of something like Fugazi and, and Springsteen. Um, did you ever feel that the Dirty Nil didn't really fit in with other local bands? Because, I mean, a, a lot of, local bands in the hamilton area uh around the time that you guys were getting started were primarily you know metalcore or or hardcore leaning uh did it kind of feel like the odd man out to be to be playing the the type of uh music that the dirty nil was playing at the time
1: yeah i never really found we had the contemporaries uh, in the city like it was yeah. it wasn't until we got to toronto and Started, I mean, usually we were playing with bands that were either much lighter than us or much heavier than us. And um, um we were kind of in between almost every uh all of the people that we shared the stage with. Um we were either uh I mean, you know, we just had uh we all we're we're grounded in, you know, pop sensibility and melody and stuff. So yeah. it's uh but we, it was awesome to get to share the stage with way more abrasive bands, but I always felt like we kind of stuck, like we, we didn't quite fit in with uh, the more kind of angular stuff like Mets and stuff uh, or Single Mothers or TV Freaks or Greys, all amazing bands. But um, Mm -hmm. it was always an, it was always kind of a mixed bag in terms of presenting all of our different kinds of bands together on one stage um, and having, uh uh i just i I definitely did feel a little bit separated and um i think at different times in our career we felt inclinations to move closer to different directions and i think we do kind of depending on the song either try Mm -hmm. and go towards uh the more melodic and pop sensible side or follow our inclinations toward white noise destruction but uh, (laughs) usually we sit kind of and bounce between those two uh two poles pretty pretty comfortably from song to song
0: definitely uh and so let's uh moving on to the next song here uh and that is the who amazing journey live off the album live at leeds released may 23rd 1970 um i guess i would say this band They, they, they kind of, uh, the Who kind of rode that, that, I guess, middle, uh, because their performances on stage were, you know, incredibly punk, uh, but, but then you do have those, those melodies, um, and those kind of pop, I guess, sensibilities. Um, so how, how much of an impact, I guess, has the Who had on, on the Dirty Nails stage presence?
1: Uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a band that had more of an impact on our stage presence. Um, Mm -hmm. And particularly, you know, when Kyle and I started the band back in 2006, we basically, we were just, you know, absolutely fundamentally inspired by The Who. That's kind of like where Kyle and I really came together, uh, is like, um, is just really just worshipping The Who. And uh, I mean, live at Leeds to me is still, there is nobody that has ever touched that album in terms of how good they are live and how effortless they switch between, you know, really, really um, ambitious, kind of uh, melodically refined uh, compositions. And then Mm -hmm. to your point, to just some like straight up punk nastiness, like mc5 territory um and then from uh, and then they can just turn on a dime into something that almost sounds like a symphonic band and it's just a guitar bass drums and and a lead singer and then i mean their harmonies were always so spot on there was some interview that i heard the the other day where some guy famous guitar player was asking he was talking about how all he like whatever he asked people from the uh the late 60s, all their all their bands like them to look back on, you know, guys from The Stones and, and Zeppelin and he'd ask them, aside from your own band, who was the best band live and without fail, every single person said the who. Every <laughs> single person. And he, apparently when he asked Mick Jagger, he didn't even get the full question out. Mick Jagger just said the who, like clearly, <laughs> like just. Yeah, the that, who. that says something. Yeah, the who. Yeah. and And you can watch things like the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus where you know, the Stones are supposed to be the centerpiece of the whole thing. But the Who play right before and uh, the Stones shelved the project for 30 years because the, the Who were so much better than they were. Um, and they are like a punk band, like they're having fun, they're knocking mics over, they're smiling. And yeah. uh, they're clearly super loud and having a really good time. And the Stones are just kind of And I don't get me wrong, I love the Rolling Stones, but the Who uh, are just uh, they're a sheer force of nature where um, other bands, um, it just seems like um, they were they were completely without uh, without uh, peers. Um, But I would say about Live at Leeds and particularly this song, um, you know, again, an extremely ambitious uh, composition that the band put together and the thing about the who too is that like it's not until who's next like their album right after live at Leeds, that they really get down on record how how loud and nasty and powerful they could be it's it's always been a kind of a strange and subtle tragedy to me that the who spent the 60s trying to make kind of bizarre and novelty recordings and there's some great Powerful moments within there sometimes, but in general. But then you got like squeeze box. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? Like there's such a there's such a a, a dichotomy between you know you see the photos of them playing live and it's just like holy shit! Like they're smashing things, and you can tell how loud that show must be. And then you listen to a recording from like a week later, and it's just like and it's just the vocals are super high in the mix, and the guitars are really jangly and kind of quiet, and um, there's not a ton of uh, there's not a, it, they don't really resemble each other in any way. So I think it was because Live at Leeds was so successful and wi- widely regarded, er, um, um, so highly regarded that Pete Townsend was like, okay, well, let's make a record that's like, you know, proper, proper who record. And yeah, that's has that made. energy. Yeah, exactly. And then they made Who's Next, which is, you know, it's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to have a better album than that from them but um for me like the uh the live at Leeds one is just such a good a demonstration of how much dynamic control a band can have and the uh, with with regards to the tension and release of that song the song is called Amazing Journey and it certainly does bring you on an amazing journey um but the the way that it kind of it's a similar thing to the uh, Dinosaur Jr the Constantine's example where um it, it 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 brings you to this claustrophobic, tense little space that's kind of really quiet and building up in dynamics. And when they release, when they drop the hammer, it's like the most white noise <laughs> atom bomb. Like I know I used that example on the Constantines, but it's even more so at the Who. It's like it's like it's just white noise craziness, and the drums are going. And it's again, you want to talk about like hair standing on edge moments that's a big one for me that i still listen to her. i'm like i can't i'm so happy that they got this on Definitely. on record like this you know because the, the tommy version of it's nowhere near as
0: as powerful it's much more acoustic based and, which is cool mm-hmm. but give me live uh, leads over everything absolutely uh i i saw them on uh they did like the quadrophenia anniversary tour in 2012 uh, oh yeah yeah, it was it was incredible. I don't I don't. That's not my favorite album by the Who, but uh, like live, it was it was just such a an experience. Um, and, was that and so, the show
1: that Pete Townsend told the kid to fuck off? Uh,
0: it was in Ottawa. Oh, not I, I, oh, okay. I don't think so. Yeah, but in, I. In,
1: sorry. Go ahead.
0: In, no, I was, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say. Uh, the the video i don't know if you've seen it but the video roger daltrey getting pissed off at the the guy in the audience because he smelled pot and he he stops the show because he's like i don't want to play if there's any pot in this crowd yeah <laughs> super funny right yeah i mean That's understandable but understandable i
1: guess he says he has an allergic reaction to it where his throat mm-hmm. closes up or something so i don't know if you're 75 years old and you're making requests from your audience i, I you would probably just don't smoke front for roger daltrey but the um yeah so i think it was the same tour but uh when they played in hamilton um this little girl it was her first concert ever and yeah. uh her dad was holding her up and this little girl had a sign that said pete smash your guitar and pete saw the sign and said like stop the song and was just like i just want to say to that little or like something to, he said he's just like he's like your daddy put you up to that, didn't you? And the whole crowd like went wild. And They just like, well, I just want to say, fuck you, and then just like went on the song. And it was like a big, uh, big story in the in the Hamilton Spectator the next day that Pete Townsend told like a ten year old kid to fuck off, and he like. Then like a few days later he like make a, made an apology. It is just such a funny story, such like a the Who story. Like,
0: <laughs> it's always funny for some reason. Hamilton always ends up uh, getting the 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 brute of uh, of things. Did you see the, whole, oh, yeah. the the Def Leppard scenario?
1: Oh, what happened with that one?
0: I think Def Leppard uh, they came out after and said something that playing Hamilton the whole venue smelled like a, a porta potty.
1: <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Also. Um, pink floyd blew up the hamilton tiger cats uh scoreboard in 1973 on the last show of their dark side of the moon tour they had a bunch of extra pyro and they're like yeah let's just lay it all off and they blew up the sign so wow I... uh pink floyd bought the new sign that they installed in the 70s that's amazing
0: um yeah and so one last thing with the who uh, 2017, coming hot off the heels of winning Breakthrough artists at the Junos, and that same summer you get to open for the Who at festival, uh, at the the Quebec Festival. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you can you bring us into I guess what that day was like for you?
1: I, I you know is is one of the greatest uh, days of my life. That with without uh, without a doubt, it's in the top five. Um, I mean, when we got the. like we were supposed to play on the same day as Metallica, just on a a different stage or something like that. Okay. And then our manager called us while we were in England playing. He's just like, okay, so I got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is you're not playing on the same day as Metallica. We're like, what the fuck, man? That sucks. He goes, good news is you're opening for the Who, like on the main stage. And we're like, what? It was, was, (laughs) I was just thrown into, and I was having a particularly bad day. Just, you know, just, I don't know. Touring provides you with those sometimes, but um, um, that completely just changed my entire perspective of life. Uh, It was such great news. And the actual day itself was just a continuation of that. It was like living in a dream. It was my 27th birthday and you know, we we walked out and we played our set and we smashed it in front of like 50,000 people. And then um, we came off and they had a cake for me. It was the best best day ever. And then, I got to meet Pete Townsend, which was super cool, and met Roger Daltrey. Off? He did. Unfortunately, he was really nice to me. I was kind of disappointed in how nice he was to me. You you always want your heroes to tell you to fuck off, or at least I do. But uh, he, was, he was very kind, and I was just like, you know, when I saw him, I'm just like, me and him actually got kind of pinned together by an SUV because we were standing in the same area, mm-hmm. and um, I turned to him, and he could see the expression on my face of just like, Oh my God. And he's just like, and he kind of gave me this facial expression, like, go ahead.
0: And Uh, I'm just like, Oh my
1: God, Pete, you're my favorite guitar player of all time. All this. And I'm just like, it's my birthday. And I just want (laughs) to say, I love you. And all this stuff. And like, I just, just verbal, verbal nonsense. And he just smiled and he goes, well, I'm glad you're having such a great day. And then I took a picture with him and Roger Daltrey came out and I took a picture with him too. And, you know, it was just a very special moment in my life that I, I am very, very thankful that whatever happens from now on, that I got to play with
0: you. That's true. And on your birthday. And on my 27th
1: birthday.
0: Yeah. Um, So moving on to the next song here, Guided by Voices, Over the Neptune, uh, Mesh Gear Fox, off the album Propeller, released February 14th, 1992. Um, It's funny that you put Guided by Voices on here, because uh, over this entire quarantine... Uh, I've become obsessed uh, with the music of Bob Pollard and and Guided by Voices. Um, Like, just such a a fascinating story about the band. Welcome Um,
1: aboard, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, you know, just with Bob Pollard, like, you know, high school jock, you know turned school teacher and then spends his like 30s writing and recording these songs and, and finally they're sent out and then by 1995 they're signed to matador and yeah on mtv and everything it's it's insane but uh um, such a yeah. story when when did you get into uh guided by voices
1: i got into guided by voices when i was about 17 years old i was just like i so back in 2007 um or eight or so and uh the first song that i heard by them was um i am a scientist and then i was okay. just a fan from there on out um I, i'm a scientist and like i recognized the, the the influence of the who on that band but yeah, i've never definitely. heard like like lo-fi recordings before and it was like a an introduction into that world but through such a, a excellent tune smith like robert pollard that it 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 had this amazing, undeniable charm because the songs were so good, you know, and like mm-hmm. the, the lo fi aspect of it, it was kind of almost irrelevant to me. Like, I didn't really care that I eventually grew to like enjoy the lo fi aspect because it was tied to these songs. But, you know, a lot of low, like people use lo fi as an excuse for shitty songs. There's like, oh, we're just lo fi. But guided by voices, they're genuinely, um, and I mean, there's a lot. So there's a, there's a lot of songs that I'm just like, I, can do it without that guy to buy voices or whatever. Like, yeah, like, he, he has
0: like 2600 songs credited yeah, to him it's as a writer mental
1: it's mental yeah. there's so many songs that it's just like you're gonna have you're gonna have some doozies in there and there's a lot of doozies but when robert pollard hits it on the head it's the greatest thing ever and yeah, uh yeah. i mean i i am uh am a huge subscriber to the mythology of Guided by of voices and i really love that band you know what funny story last year uh, we played with, with, on my birthday, we played with Guy to Buy Voices. I met Robert Pollard. Really? Yeah. And uh,
0: Two for two. Two birthdays. Two for
1: two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then uh, back in 2014, I went on a road trip with my friends to go see Guy to Buy Voices uh, do the classic lineup tour in okay. Louisville, Kentucky.
0: And we, you know, we got extremely drunk at the show. Yeah, and, as uh, you, as they almost want you to. Yeah, you're like, not really uh, allowed
1: to not get no. uh, <laughs> destroyed. So, and then at the end of the show, Mitch Mitchell handed me all of his Miller lights, and I, my my life was complete. And then like two shows later, the classic lineup dissolved again. But they were really good that night, I will say.
0: Yeah, and, uh, um, they. The, th- the thing that you were mentioning, like. Uh, you know, a lot of those classic recordings like B-thousand or Alien Lanes, um, they are very, you know, lo-fi in sound, but I think what's interesting is that, you know, this band became massively influential for a lot of alt-rock bands, but Bob Pollard is, you know, primarily inspired by bands like The Who and The Beatles and The Kinks, these like really clean, beautiful melodies. Mm -hmm. Um, that are layered under these completely distorted, uh, you know, four track recordings.
1: Yes. Yeah. And they would be nothing, the warmth of the recordings because of like their, you know, that, that, you know, really compressed, uh, smooth sound is just, is, is basically just like a a, a really nice canvas for Bob's melodies, you know? And like, Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Bob might be like one of the most talented guys melodically to ever exist. I really actually believe that. Like I I think his melodies are just beyond beautiful, and they're clearly like very influenced by Roger Daltrey's singing. Like a lot of them, because he is a really good singer. Like Robert, people. It's I think it's easy to underestimate how good Robert Pollard is because you know he's he's like this guy in his sixties always holding a beer yeah. uh, <laughs> and. Uh, um, He's kind of he's a little bit unassuming at this point but then you hear him sing and uh he is just fantastic um on record and live and i think that that's one of those things it's kind of like a it's a similar thing but uh just a little bit different than the who in terms of like you listen to Godiva got voices recordings and they're a little bit subdued right just by nature of their lo-fi format and you see gotta mm-hmm. voices live and in the words of my friend Keon from philadelphia Guided by Voices Live is a proper, proper rock and roll show. Like it is, uh, <laughs> there's chain smoking cigarettes and windmills and full stacks, and it's wild. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I um, saw a video from uh, like the Austin City Limits show in in like 2004. Um, and Pete Yorn got brought up on stage, and they must have just been feeding him drinks because he he's at the point that he's trying to sing Cut Out Witch with uh bob and he can hardly like stand himself up yeah uh, <laughs> in need of assistance yeah but uh this yeah so i mean this song in particular i guess uh just quickly to go into like the you know the theme here the tension and release of this song um the, the the first thing that i love about this song is just that guided by voices chant in the beginning how yeah you know, that, that's just Bob in his, in his garage, creating this, uh, almost like this, his own fantasy of, of yeah. what he would want to hear. And then, you know, flash forward to now and when yeah. they play shows, people do the chant, which yeah. that's exactly. yeah, crazy. He created his own destiny. Literally.
1: And, yeah. uh, the other yeah, thing, I mean, it's funny because there's a bunch of songs on, on, on propeller that have a similar kind of vibe. Like weed King is the same way where, Again, it, it, it kind of brings you into this, um, this moving, kind of tight, um, uh, tense uh, piece of music. And then got the guided by voices one is strange too, because like it, it not only relaxes melodically and opens up, but the tempo slows down a ton. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like this wave crashing down and slow, like the water slowly washing up on the shore, or something like that. When the the song finally breaks, and Robert Rob Pollard has like this just insanely awesome vocal melody that would make like if it was done like if Oasis did it, it would be a hit. You know, like it's that's what I always kind of hear in some of like Robert Pollard's finer moments is that like this is this is some world-class melodic handling right now and that's that's one of my favorite ones right there that uh that song the way that that song breaks uh is just so beautiful it's so cool and such an interesting expressive musical moment that uh you know is very similar to the other um uh examples that we've talked about but has the added uh expression of that like tempo change uh, that that, mm-hmm. that real uh uh that legato uh, i guess was or, or uh whatever we whatever call it technically uh but the whole time signature changes and it goes into this really um um really teased out uh section that uh because you they he they make you work for it you know they they yeah, there's like a yeah. good minute or so or two minutes of of tension and then there's such an epic, epic release.
0: Um, and and finally with guided by voices, uh, if you had to pick one album, you know, you could only listen to one full album by this band. What would it be? Um, I would, I would probably,
1: it's just a toss up daily basically for me between alien lanes and B thousand. You know, I like a lot of their later stuff too. I really like the, Under the Bushes, Under the Stars album, Mm -hmm. Um, and I really like. Yeah, and I really like Same Place the Fly Got Smashed. But in terms of, um, that's one of my favorite ones, actually. Same Place the Fly Got Smashed, Uh, but uh, I'm gonna have to go with. uh, I'm gonna have to go with uh, Alien Lanes. Alien Lanes just is kind of like, it's it's got um, it's got so many cool sounds on it and opening with uh, salty salute you can't beat mm-hmm.
0: it you know. yeah absolutely uh and, and so let's move on to the last song here and that is david bowie life on mars off the album hunky dory released december 17th 1971 uh this is like one of those songs that it just feels like it's always kind of been in my life um same thing with like queen bitch uh mm-hmm. the you know, Bowie in general, uh, I just feel like his music has just kind of been always, always there. Um, so this song, it, uh, I I think it's like Bowie at his best, uh, with these really out there lyrics that, that draw you in and then, you know, his like soaring inflection, just roaring over that chorus. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, why, why this song?
1: Well, just as a little bit of a preface, like, you know, our, you know, I, I would say that Bowie has not always been something that's kind of an omnipresent in my life until I was about 19 or 18 years old, and I really like. Then when I when I got a hold of Ziggy Stardust for the first time, and I, um, I just as a band we became obsessed with it and covered half the album. Just we would just <laughs> practice it just because it was so yeah. fun, such great uh, rock and roll pop compositions, you know. But then. It took me a while to like move backwards and then later forwards in his catalog and really explore things. But I think it was about two, when I was about 24 years old, I really, really got into this song. You know, I'd heard it before and in passing on the radio and stuff, but um, when I really sat down and heard it the first time, I'm not even sure uh, where I was, but I just became so obsessed with this really, really advanced and fine Uh, chord progression on the piano Mm. um and i became obsessed with trying to learn how to play it on guitar and uh it took me basically three years to be able to play it on guitar uh but it is i think just one of my favorite pieces of music that i've ever heard in my life like that that song is just uh i think you know i think the first time i really listened to it was in uh Life Aquatic, okay,
0: um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Wes Anderson movie, and where you know, I I can't remember the gentleman's name who's doing all the Bowie covers on the classical yeah. guitar and kind of uh, in French. But then the only Bowie song that is the original recording is Life on Mars, I think. In that, in that, if I'm remembering correctly, um,
0: I think Queen Bitch might be in it. Uh, I don't know. I'm watched that movie in a in a, in a while. But, uh, yeah. Great I'm flip. pretty
1: sure that life on Mars is in that one, though, and it's just it's in such a cool moment. and uh, um, you know as long as not, my mind isn't just inventing that, but that's that's my recollection at least. And I just completely um, talk about, you know, this is probably the good the best one for the last example because this is the most refined example of 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 of, of attention and release that I can think of in a pop song. Mm -hmm. um for me personally like the uh it's not kind of bashing and then leading to white noise like the who or dinosaur jr and it's kind of like i'd say that the gbv song kind of is at the beginning of this um but when it comes to how the, the the marriage between these weird suspended and augmented chords that the piano is doing and descending chords and as it begins to build when the strings come in and just yeah, just yeah. absolutely each chord is tenser and tenser and tenser and when it hits the ceiling like <laughs> it is just like the greatest the greatest moment ever like and um, yeah
0: if it, it feels like euphoric uh yeah, yeah
1: it's it's like an ultimate it's like the ultimate broadway show tune or something yeah, like it's yeah. uh, it sounds <laughs> it sounds like it should be in you know uh uh it it should be a broadway song not a rock and roll song it's that kind of refined like it sounds like a team of 10 guys wrote it or something it doesn't Mm -hmm. the thing that's always struck me about that song is that i can't believe that one guy did that and like that um that bowie was capable of doing so much with rock music uh that he yeah i just didn't i didn't appreciate that he could get like that um elegant with his compositions because you know the first things that i got into were like ziggy stardust and you know uh you know rebel Rebel. rebels yeah Yeah. straight up rock songs that were kind of like almost you know like you know rebel rebels almost like a stones groove and stuff like i'm Mm -hmm. like this is cool this is cool and then when i found life on mars and or really really found it and actually absorbed what the song was um I was really, really just floored with how elegant it was. and um, how how dramatic it actually was. like it is uh, I think it is the ultimate example that I can think of of rock and roll music um, being dramatic and evoking that tension and release because there Definitely, is uh, yeah. there's no and it's and it's not like um, the previous examples that we've talked about where once, once you get that release, it stays released. Mm-hmm. Like that song gives you that that huge release, and then moves, brings it back down, brings yeah. it back down, and then gives it to you again. And uh, yeah. I just think that that it's such an artful way of of playing with the listener's emotions. That uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the ultimate one for me.
0: Definitely. Uh, and then yeah, just one last like interesting thing I found about this song uh, in nineteen ninety. Uh, Bowie introduced this song on tour uh, saying you fall in love, you write a love song this is a love song uh, and I, I think that like I don't know it just it reflects Bowie's genius because uh, it, it is so elegant but again like lyrically uh, I you have to really like I think pick apart this song to, to kind of find the details that would allude to this being a, a love song I guess yeah that's um, but, a very yeah, interesting thing he's not making it, uh, obvious or, you know, it's not cliched. Um, yeah. But yeah. Bowie. I don't think uh, Bowie
1: could ever be accused of cliche.
0: <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that was the, the final song here, uh, tension and release. And, uh, at the end of every show, I like to ask the guest, what did we learn today?
1: Well, I guess we learned that rock and roll is a, Uh, we were reminded that rock and roll is a beautiful and colorful tapestry of uh, different uh, textures um, ranging from uh, white noise, sheer distortion to delicate and refined chord patterns. uh, And that, you know, music i think the the central aspect of music to me or one of them top three is this idea of tension and release and that Mm -hmm. is the it's the the central theme of great drama in film and plays and books and music is just one of those things and i um i think it's one of the greatest uh uh tools available to any kind of writer so if you if you're a writer of any kind i would uh i would uh, urge you to reflect upon this principle and what it means to you
0: absolutely well thank you so much luke uh that was a great great time talking today uh i'm done with drugs is out now Uh, a new episode of the show will be coming out next thursday stay safe everyone